This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. On today's show, we're going to look at some of the recent world SBK news. Steve English, Gordon Ritchie and uh, Charlie Hiscott, you're back on the podcast once again, Charlie. And it was kind of by popular demand. And uh, by popular demand, I mean there was two people, me and Gordo, that said it wouldn't be bad to have you back on the pod. I cannot tell you how happy I was to hear that you wanted me to come again. It's just the most wonderful moment of my life. Thanks, Devo. Thanks, Gordo. It's a pleasure. Yeah, well, in fairness, I've seen you walking around the paddock, Charlie. I know how hard your life has been. So, Gordo, it wasn't it wasn't that bad for us to, to make a wish come true for, for a poor kid. It's always good to get a new voice, especially when he's experienced as Charlie. And then remember, Charlie, Charlie does a slightly different job from us, so he gets different insight. It's not... The same stuff we get sometimes. He's got his way of getting it. We've got our way of getting it. And that's what makes it good. That's why I think it works great as a little three-hander here. Too kind, fellas. Too kind. Yeah, well, that's about as kind as it's going to get because we're going to jump straight into some of the big news from World SBK. Alvaro Bautista has just been confirmed at Ducati for another year. And Gordo, no surprise with that at all. No. Um, and the way he's gone back into it, he's settled back in perfectly. The results have come. There doesn't seem to be the, any kind of wobble from them at all, uh, you know they hope that they've got all those problems behind them in 19, from nineteen, um, and it's the obvious thing to do. The second seat is the interesting one now, and there's any number of possibilities there. Um, and with Bautista definitely nailed on for next year, then Ducati have maybe got more freedom to be a bit more radical on who they choose for that seat. Um, there's a couple of names in the frame, but uh, now they have more freedom because they've got their effectively number one rider in place yeah one of the names obviously Danilo Petrucci Petrucci looks like he's going to have a wild card later on in the season maybe at the Portimao round that'd be interesting to see how he goes on that obviously he's over in Moto America at the minute and he's not made any friends over in the US at all so he'll be quite keen you'd imagine to be one and done out there get himself back to a world championship and he'd certainly be well in demand for Ducati Charlie um yeah I mean I think that would be a great shout to get Petrucci in, but that kind of goes against the ethos of getting Bautista back, which was to get a small rider. If you can't, you know, if you're not developing a bike, we've said this before, Gigi Delinia, if you haven't got the money to develop a bike like that, then the one thing you can do is shave off 15 kilos in the rider. So while I think it's a good idea, and obviously Danilo's well-liked at Ducati, it kind of goes against the way that they're going. So I, 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 when, I mean, I don't know, I don't know. It'd be nice, but I can't. I can't see it happening. Well, there's two things I'd put into that. One, I heard, I read a comment the other day uh, that Petrucci is quite keen to stay in America and try and uh, do the championship next year. He, he's, he's talked about that as well, as well as coming back. But I spoke to uh, Paolo Ciabatti at the weekend at Mizano, and the one name that he brought in from outside, other than the current rider Michael Ruben Rinaldi, was Petrucci. And I didn't volunteer that name to him. He said they were also keeping their eye on, on Petrucci. So maybe there's a, there's the choice. That will be Ducati's realistic final choice. Now you assume they've spent a lot of budget on Batista. Is to either decide if Michael's performance is good enough, they'll keep him. And if not, they'll try and get Petrucci in as a, a proper second rider. In theory, in theory, he should come as a very, very strong instant entry. But as we've seen before, there's no guarantees. Yeah, um, there is one other thing for me to, to bear in mind is that actually 
uh, Ducati are a pretty forward-thinking factory, and Petrucci is knocking on a bit. So is Bautista. So I'm sure Ducati are well aware that they've got to develop some new talent. Now, Ruben Rinaldi, we know he's really popular with Aruba. Um, how well you have to do on that bike um, to, to keep your seat there, I don't think he's doing it for me. He's, what, four years on with Ducati, and he's not cutting the mustard. He was good in Mizano, but Bautista's killing the races. Do you know what I mean? So I think, actually, you've got people like Ulega. There's other stuff going on in MotoGP this year. They were, you know, we're definitely getting a bit of uh, musical chairs happening over the next year or two. So for me, Ducati would be... I think they'll be looking at a younger rider, bringing someone on. I think that's what they would do in an ideal world, but the, I think the problem is that they're not living in an ideal world, and ultimately, as far as the superbike team's concerned, they are living quite a lot in Aruba world. Now, it doesn't mean that Michael's going to stay, but I think he has to prove himself for the next few Good races point. and mm. overcome that thing of that he has to perform at the level that everybody expects him to and and you know to be hard about it what he should be doing at this stage of his career Mizano we knew he was going to go well it's the other races um, he had a bad start to the test of the good Aragon and then it fell away then he was good at Mizano again these are the things that factory riders shouldn't be doing the factory riders should be there top 4-5 every weekend no you know bad setup choices and down in 10th whatever now we don't know the situation in the garage you never do until you're there but ultimately yes if you've got a factory bike you're paid to win whether you win one or two, whether you win five or six, whether you're the number one rider or number two rider. But if you're not, you're a factory rider that's not winning, you're always in danger of, of losing your ride to someone else who can convince you that they will win. No, just just want to throw Ollie Bayliss in the mix to that as well, because there's a relationship with Ducati that's already very strong. And he's starting to pick up a bit of form. It's hard for him. He's had to learn every single circuit we go to this year. So I think he might need a year or two to develop a bit more yeah. and get onto Supai. But while Bautista is winning these races, surely now is the time when you've got the championship being what effectively won by Bautista. Now is the time to think about what's going to happen when Bautista's going to go because Bautista's knocking on a bit as well, isn't he? He's not no spring chicken. So you've got to be yeah. looking at two or three years ahead and they've got some talent coming through. Well, the one thing about that is, though, is who do they have coming through that you look at it and you say they're definitely going to be that star rider? And whoever that would be, it would be where you put them on to, you know, the Moto Corsa bike, like Axel Bassani or Luca Bernardi on the Barney bike. You know, you put them on one of those, the smaller teams rather than into the factory team. Because Rinaldi, for his faults, and there's pretty clear faults for Rinaldi where he hasn't had that consistency, he is still a better option than some of the other riders. And then on the other side of that coin, Petrucci's just a better rider than Rinaldi. So for two years, if you don't think Rinaldi's ever going to develop into that world champion for you, you might as well put Petrucci on the bike for two years. You know he's going to be good. The one thing about it is that over the, the last six months, when you look at Petrucci in America, you have to look at it and say that he needs the situation to be right because he hasn't been happy over there. He's been starting fights with riders. He's been not doing his media obligations. He hasn't been training as hard by all the reports over there. He's basically just gone over to Moto America and been bitty big time. And you can't go and do that in World Superbikes now. It's not like maybe a few years ago where there wasn't a depth in the field. You have to go and you have to respect the championship, respect your rivals, and know that you're going to have to work just as hard in Superbikes as you do in MotoGP. It might be a different type of working because obviously you know, MotoGP with 20, 21 rounds is very different to you know, the 11, 12, 13 rounds that we've had in Superbikes the last few years. So Petrucci would have to have the right mental 
approach to going to World Superbikes. But if he went there with that attitude, he'd do a better job than Rinaldi because he's a better rider than Rinaldi. And I think that that's nothing against Michael. I think what's going to be interesting to see is what happens for Rinaldi because, you know, where does he go if he doesn't end up on a Ducati next year? Does he go back to Pichetti and try himself on a Kawasaki for the first time since he was on a Stock 600 bike? Does he try something totally different going forward? Because maybe Ducati look at it and say, we'd rather back Bassani going forward than Rinaldi. I think the, the issue there is... There are other choices out with the riders we've spoken about. They always like to get an Italian rider on the factory bike, but if they're winning, I don't think it matters as much. So, you know, as Charlie mentioned, the name Uto there, there's no reason why he wouldn't do it if if he improves it the way he could. Um, because, but that would be a learning ride rather than a, a immediate impact ride that you would imagine Petrucci or a, someone coming from MotoGP would be able to make. Um, and then we haven't even mentioned the MotoGP paddock yet about the potential number of people that could come over there. Um, any number of riders could go into that seat straight away and, and make a good fist of it, um, and they would still be young. It's it's a very, um, as I've said before many times, MotoGP's got such a powerful gravity for riding talent and all these junior cups and, and feeder classes and so on. They have just always produced more riders that they can use. And the obvious place for them to go is in World Superbike when we are not developing, projecting, promoting younger riders from the national championships from anywhere that are of the talent that can walk any World Superbike and do a job. And that's almost from any country in the world. It's not limited to one series or whatever. There's a big disconnect now. Um, and so much talent is is over in MotoGP because that's the way the system was designed to do it. Obviously enough, Charlie, you were at Aston at the weekend and one of the things that was interesting over there was that Alex Marquez got confirmed as being a, a Ducati rider next year in MotoGP. He had actually been talking to World Superbike teams. Paul Espagaro has talked to World Superbike teams. Alex Rins has talked to them. So those riders have been trying to see what's available over in the, in the Superbike paddock as well. Obviously it looks like Rins is going to stay in GP on an LCR Honda. Paul's future is still a little bit uncertain, but it's interesting that all those guys are looking to see what's available in superbikes. To be mercenary about it, I guess you have to look at what the difference is in money because at the end of the day, if your money is a big motivator, and that's one of the reasons why I wonder why Petrucci didn't come to World Superbikes when he finished in MotoGP, and I think it probably is that actually World Superbikes is great a championship as it is. Maybe that you just can't earn the same sort of money that you can on a uh, on a on a different ride in MotoGP or a secondary ride in MotoGP. So maybe that's the, the thing that, you know, it's all well and good talking about talent and age and youth and blah, blah, blah. Um, but actually, it might just come down to economics. Just before I throw to Gordo, um, Petrucci's quite an interesting one because he obviously wants to do Dakar. Ducati wouldn't let him do Dakar and be a world superbike rider. That's why he ended up getting placed over Motor America. And then you wait and see what happens. He does have a clause in his contract. If he wins the Motor America Championship, he will get a world superbike ride if he wants it. So it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out. But as it is right now, Jake Gagne hitting a lot of form in America, it's going to be harder and harder for Petrucci to win that championship. Gordo, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah, I mean, I was in one of the conversations I had at the weekend in Mizano was uh, Iker Lacona, who said that other MotoGP riders had been speaking to him as he had been speaking to them about going to World Superbike. What's it really like? And he said that there were definitely a few that were quite interested. And he said that from his experience, although he's very early in it yet and he's he's already got a podium under his belt um, and certainly got a lot of talent, 
and learning quickly on a bike that was very difficult for the last two years, um, you'd be looking at that as a MotoGP rider thinking, well, he's a factory guy. He gets straight on a factory ride. And if I can get a factory ride and somebody to help pay the salary or the, the, some degree of delta for the salary you might get in MotoGP compared to World of Superbike, well, I could do that. Because it's better winning in Superbike than being 22nd for the rest of your career in MotoGP, even if you're a MotoGP rider and all the status that that gives people. Um, that would be a better career option for for some riders than to stay in MotoGP at all costs. Because we've seen that the move over doesn't guarantee anything unless you get a good ride here, the same way that moving over to MotoGP guarantees nothing uh, and to, unless you get a good ride over there. So... You know, it's you can't you can move into World of Superbike is a very good option for some MotoGP riders and certainly not others. Um, and everybody wants to stay MotoGP, but if you don't get a good bike, what's the point? Yeah, and I think that's obviously the biggest the biggest point and what we're going to talk about in part two because we're going to talk about Top Rack Razgarioglu having his MotoGP test at Aragon last week as well, and uh, obviously the quality of the bike has been the big thing for Top Rack. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing. And we mentioned it just before the the ad break there as well Gordo Top Rack Razgiriogli he had his MotoGP test at Aragon it was bad weather for Top Rack he missed out in the afternoons running but it was quite interesting that uh, some of the feedback I heard from the test was that Top Rack was later on the brakes than anyone Yamaha has ever seen on the bike so that's no surprise but he was also slower through the corner than anyone had ever been around uh, parts of Aragon as well obviously he would have had his data compared to Cal Crutchlow who was also testing and uh, it would have then meant that uh, certainly for Top Rack we would have been able to get an insight into how he would approach riding a MotoGP but obviously that he's very much a work in progress as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's been brought up all through his career on a certain brand of tyre. Uh, the tyre makes a big difference. Um, the performance of the bike is much greater, so you have to go and find that performance. It takes people years to get to the point of winning MotoGP races and going at that pace, and he had 40-odd laps, apparently. So it's a, it's an untrue test of top rack or anything else, especially as he lost the afternoon as well to bad weather. But... There's one thing already that he's doing that, that somebody else can't do. I don't think anybody seriously doubts that, that, that Top Rack's got such a talent. If it can be moulded to fit the new bike, and a totally it's not just the bike, it's a completely different way of riding, much more engine power, uh, much more chassis, much more tunable chassis, a prototype um, compared to somebody that has to work around and find his own way to ride around. Um, there's only so much setup you can do in a super bike, even though there's a lot of options. Um, and a MotoGP bike is different, but you're not going to get the, an idea how Top Rack's going to do for real until he does a season there, two seasons there, four seasons there. You're not really going to understand that unless, you know, he is the new Marquez, which at the moment, Quartararo seems to be the, the man because of his consistency as much as his pace. Um, it, it, it just it's just indicative of the problem that, that Top Rider, anyone would have going to MotoGP is it's the biggest class of all. 
it's the most difficult class of all and it's where all the most talented riders go to and have been in for a while so it wouldn't be easy for them but I don't think anybody seriously think that Top Rank wouldn't be a positive talented and probably successful addition to the championship so I'd sort of I agree with you, but there was definitely a bit of chat in Aston about um, people saying, or I won't say who, but some very heavyweight riders saying that they thought that actually Top Rank style wouldn't fit the way a MotoGP bike and a MotoGP, you know, and a, um, MotoGP tyres work, right? So there was a bit of, um, it's not negativity, not negativity, but while we're, you know, while lots of people are saying Top Rank's going to go over there and he's going to be amazing, there are, there are doubts about it, about his style particularly. And actually, it sounds like on that test that he was obviously breaking a lot, lot later than Cal and then not, not, not getting it into the corner, not getting off the apex. I think he ran on a lot from what I heard. But anyway, um, there was a lot of speculation. He said that, she said that and all that sort of stuff. So I thought, actually, I'll um, send Top Rank a message and I actually got a reply from him which is the only thing that I've heard with, with any actual from the horse's mouth, yeah? I mean, we've got that press release, but outside of that, the whole thing's been conjecture. And Gordo, you summed it up straight away, was that the guy had two hours on the bike. He didn't really have a lot of time, but he said, and I quote, um, after the super bike, it was very difficult, especially the sitting position and the tires. Um, he said, we started with a very different gas style, but then we fixed it. We made a lot of um, adjustments on the, tra- on the traction control. There was a lot of electronic adjustments, and then it started to rain. Um, he said, I need some time to feel better on the bike and later on I can understand its limits. Um, I can learn the style of the tyre better um, and the style of the bike, but this is not something that will happen in two hours. But I had a lot of fun and I rode the bike for two hours. So, you know, that's basically it. Two hours, you need two years. That's you need it. two years. As far exactly as I'm concerned, right, you need two years. Exactly. You know? right. So we'll not know unless somebody gives them two years on a proper bike. And that's another question. Well, I think that's actually the the biggest question. I actually wanted to to ask someone else for their opinion on it as well. So I asked Evo from Speed Week for his thoughts on Toprax MotoGP test. Everyone in the MotoGP paddock thinks that it must be the goal from from every uh, motorcycle rider in the world to be in MotoGP. But I think that Toprax is completely different to this. Um, if he's not one hundred percent sure that he can win in MotoGP and that he is not in the perfect team or on the perfect bike, he will not go to MotoGP. Um, simply because Toprak thinks he has nothing to prove and for Toprak it's very important to have the correct people around him and to have success. So he will not, he will not do a, a stupid step and just going to MotoGP to be in MotoGP. I also think that uh, for World Superbike, it would be great to have such an outstanding rider for a long time in the championship, um, you know, like like Jonathan or Tom Sykes or Chess Davies or in the past guys like, like Fogarty. Um, it's always a shame when we are losing the big talents to MotoGP like uh, Crutchlow and Ben Spees and Toesland and Edwards and all these guys. Um, because it's uh, minimizing the value of our championship. So fingers crossed that Toprak um, makes the correct decision and stays in World Superbike. On the other hand, I also think that he has um, enough talent to be successful in MotoGP. But to, to show this talent, everything needs to be perfect. And I think in the end, this is out of his own hands. Thanks for that, Evo. And uh, you could hear from from what Evo said. It's it's basically going to be similar to what, what we've been talking about on the pod in the past, that uh, for Toprak, talent's never going to be a question. It's just 
getting the right opportunity. And I think that kind of brings us nicely towards another writer as well, because Garrett Gerloff's one of the most interesting question marks in World Superbikes, because even at this stage, three years into his World Superbike career, two years on a Superbike in America, you couldn't actually say definitively who or what Garrett is like as a rider because he's so up and down. He's so much of a confidence rider, and we've seen that his confidence has just taken such a battering that I I don't see how he can ever really recapture anything at Yamaha. He seems to have, have lost the spark that he needs there. But we talked about Ducati earlier on and who could be on the second bike. I'd love to see Gerloff on the second bike. I'd love to see him go somewhere new and have a fresh start, see what he can do. All I know about Gerloff is I did speak to um, Andrea Dossele at uh, Mizano and I sort of put it to him that Mizano was not performing at all as a rider. And Gerloff is, uh, you know, 50-50. And Andrea was actually quite... um, quite honest when he asked it and I think that he sort of agreed that I see Nazano I can't see Nazano being there at the end of the year I'm not I've got no problem with that I mean the guys why would you want him in your team money yeah alright Gordo Gordo's doing all the money signs the money signs and his eyeballs yeah the Scotsman the Scotsman just look he's so he's I just telling that. me I to have that. to pay him charity that's all but you can't I mean that doesn't look you know um, GRT they've got I get where you're coming from, but you can't. That, you can only take that so far, right? That means that you know, effectively, Elon Musk can go in there, and it, it just—I don't think it can work like that. Yeah, you've still got to have, you know, Filippo Conti, who runs that team, is a very wealthy person. I don't actually think that money's that important. But I will just very quickly say that Desley also said that he said that Garrett's future needs looking at. Basically, was what he was saying. So he was kind of agreeing, saying, "Well, look, let's see what happens in the next two or three rounds." Yeah, I agree. I think that the next two rounds will be pivotal for Garrett. Um, Nozani, yes, he's, he's obviously not settled, everything else. But the other thing is, remember that, that he is ultimately riding a factory bike, more or less. They're very, very, very close. Um, partly through regulation, but also partly through the way Yamaha run things. Um, and he's a feedback guy. He is a direct feedback to Japan to the, the direct translator. So many things get lost in translation. Um, there's a Japanese guy, two Japanese guys working at the heart of KRT all the time. So there, there's no question that the feedback that goes back there can be translated properly. The the the, the Japanese engineers, uh, especially in the last two years through COVID, have been working blind. They can't just travel willy-nilly. There's very, very special rules in Japan. Um, now that's starting to loosen up. But that's, you know, there's always uh, an element of that that they need a Japanese rider to really tell them what's going on. Not in, not in any, just in a technical sense. They say, what does he mean by this? And they can literally speak in Japanese about it and give them the nuances as well as the hard figures. So there's a value to having a Japanese rider when you've got a pool of four riders. It's possible to have him there. If Gerloff was podiuming every second race, then you would probably just be quite happy. But the trouble is, neither of those guys are, it's not really happening, is it? From, what could have been a good thing for Nozani, who knows, Japanese champion, he could have been great. But look at what's happened to Garrett, who's been great, not great, and it's not really improving for him. That's a problem if you're looking at that team. It's not one, it's two. You could solve it with one or you could solve it with two. So so my question is, who runs that team? Whose decision is it? Now, I know it's a Dussolet decision, but then... You know, it's Philip Conti's team, so Filippo Conti's team. So, who actually makes the decision there? Because I would imagine Filippo Conti's like, "Hey, let's let's flip and get rid of the deadwood and start again and get some young blood in here, or get some different people in here." 
that obviously, like you said, Dostoevsky has different reasons for keeping some of the riders there. Nazani might bring money into the team, like you said. Garrett Gerloff obviously looked much better than he's looking now. So who actually makes a decision? Have you got any idea? Uh, I think it's ultimately a group decision, but it will probably even be a Yamaha Japan mm. decision. Influenced Yamaha Japan decision. Um, all these people are running Japanese motorbikes directly for Japanese factories. So Dassault is in charge. Uh, the the Roda brothers are in charge of Kawasaki, but sooner or later, it's a guy in Japan or people in Japan are aboard in Japan. Look at Suzuki. You know, did they want in MotoGP? Did they want to leave? No, but the board did. Everybody else in Suzuki probably wanted to stay in MotoGP. Sooner or later, when you're a Japanese team, the the decisions are made in Japan because they ultimately pay and provide the bikes, etc. Yeah, and I think that's the most interesting way of looking at it, Gordo, was just where does the money come from and who's calling the shots? And obviously in superbikes, it's always a little bit different whenever, if you think back to when GRT were in the Supersport paddock and uh, when they first came onto the Superbike grid, they weren't really seen as being a Yamaha team or this, that, or the other. They were just seen as the GRT squad and they'd gone from MV to then run the, the Yamaha or six in the Supersport class and then stepped up the superbike class but it did always seem that it was their decisions and then they became the Yamaha junior team and then it all changed and that's where when a lot more of the money comes in from Yamaha sponsors a lot more of the supports coming from Yamaha and that's where it then gets more and more difficult to like you said Charlie see who's actually running the show but uh, I think you'd have to look at it and say that uh, the show's been run more from Japan than it is from Italy but uh, you have to wait and see what happens I'm quite curious to see how Gerloff does these next few rounds because Donington where we go to next was a really strong racetrack from last year he could have come away with some podiums he obviously had a crash out of the lead group so this is a track that should be good for him obviously we saw Portugal and Estoril was quite a good track for him in the past he actually had a good Friday and then a bad crash on Saturday morning so we haven't fully seen how good he can be this year but it's been a disappointing year up to this stage and uh, he really does need for it to to start turning around for him but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out um obviously enough we've talked about uh top rack and his test it's gonna be interesting to see what's gonna happen going forward as well because a lot of teams testing before donnington honda have tested at donnington they're at mizano ducati's at mizano kawasaki are in aragon bmw are testing as well in, in donnington so everyone's gonna have quite a bit more mileage before heading to the next round, the fifth round of the championship. So do you think that there's going to lead to any big changes as a result of that, Gordo? I don't know. Um, I think that there's still an awful lot of uh, this season to be done before we, at least the next two races, before too many bigger decisions are going to be made. Um, I think we're we're still a bit early. We've done four rounds. It feels like we've done about 10, but we've only done four rounds so far. It's a lot of races, but it's, it's not a lot of rounds, so... I think there's still a lot of things to be thought of um, all through the paddock before we start deciding what next year is going to look like too much. It'd be interesting to see whether particularly Kawasaki and Yamaha are slightly hitting the panic button because, you know, the way uh, Bautista was in Mizano. Uh, I was going to ask you guys if anyone knew what the problem was with Jonathan in race two because when he finished 15 seconds behind Bautista and whether Top Rank had made a sort of step overnight because they seemed like they'd... I mean, um, Paul Denning said that they... Um, he said that they smoked Jonathan, which I thought was quite um, quite aggressive. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they were obviously feeling like maybe they'd made a, they actually have made a proper step that's going to carry on for the rest of the season. So hopefully with the benefit of 
um, testing and stuff like that, that, you know, some, somewhere along the line, we've got to peg Bautista back. Well, I think that was one of the most interesting things after Mizano was that there was a lot of talk from the manufacturers that Ducati might lose some revs and uh, some changes might be coming over the course of the summer, which I think it's fair to say is something that would be definitely needs to be looked at because when we look at Ducati, we always say, well, it's only Bautista that's able to achieve what he's achieving on it. The same could be said for Toprak, the same could be said for Johnny. So you do have to look at it and say that there is, for that rider-bike package combination, there is an advantage, just like there is for Ray over the other Kawasaki's, Toprak over the other Yamaha's, but those bikes get pegged back. So I think it's certainly something that needs to be looked at because we could see again in Mizano, the run from turn 10 down to turn 11, Bautista just shoots out of that corner. He's got so much more power than everyone else, it looks like, and uh, that's something that does need to be addressed just to be able to find that bit of a balance. Um, I think ultimately the the thing that struck me after uh, the final race in Mizano was that Jonathan was saying all year, well, it's not like 19, even when Bautista's winning and winning clearly because he's winning by four seconds, five seconds, you know, and then having to really fight for it. Like when he beat Top Rack in, in uh, Estoril, it was literally the, the straight that got him to win. That would have been a Top Rack win. Um, so Johnny was quite confident with that. He, he was definitely not as happy after the final race, although he was in amazingly good spirits considering how much he'd lost again. Um, he was actually, that was the most telling thing was that, that that was 15 seconds or so. It's That's a lot. It's an awful lot to lose by. That can't be pegged back 15 seconds. Four or five seconds, get the right kind of mix with a guy in the first few laps to stop him going away. You stand a chance, um, and then you can pounce if he makes a mistake and he gets tangled with somebody. You're always there. Fifteen seconds, you know. I mean, how many long laps would Batista have had to have done to for that to be a factor and still win the race? It's, that's a lot. So panic button, okay. But what can they do? They they spent last year chasing around trying to stop top rack, and all it ended up was it ended up with Johnny crashing, which Johnny's never done to any degree. And he ended up actually falling, trying to stay ahead of top rack. And this year, it happens to be Batista um, on the fastest bike there with Batista on it. I think there's going to be a lot of races this year, no matter what anybody does, that Alvaro's going to be standing on the top step. It's as simple as that, like it was in 19. And if he does enough of them, he'll win the championship. He's already on his way to doing it. Um, but I don't think we're done yet, because obviously things were even more stretched out in 19 and look at where the final result is four rounds down eight to go but things have got to change but what can be changed can make a new Kawasaki they can't make a new Yamaha well exactly well, isn't that, that that's what I meant by panic button a little bit is I mean look at the end of the day right you can refine and develop all you like I mean it's interestingly to see how I think Jonathan has the KRT squad have definitely aimed in one particular area to try and match themselves with top rack so that they, so that they you know, so they lost the championship to him last year. So that that doesn't happen this year. They've aimed at the stability, the stability on the front end, matching the rear wheel speed, and they've made a, quite a big step. And now I think that Jonathan has definitely put himself in front of top rack. We can see top rack's finishing third. I know he won his first race, but he definitely looks like the one who's progressed the least. Whereas it's not just that with Bautista, but just watching the Mazzano races back this morning, that bike. 
it's not just a good bike, blah, 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 but that just being able to pull out of someone's slipstream and drive past them, that's a massive advantage. It doesn't matter how, you know, Jonathan has to play on every single tiny little advantage he can get. He has to use it to the absolute max. Alvaro can turn on the indicator, pull out, drive past, hit the brakes. It's really easy. And that's that to me is, that's why I would say panic button because there's not a lot you can do, unless you're going to suddenly develop another... 20 horsepower, whatever it is you need to stay with him. What can you do? How, how much refining can you do to stop that guy from pulling out and whooping past you on the straights? Yeah, and I think that probably the best way to illustrate that as well is we know what Alvaro could do on another bike on the Honda. He crashed his brains out. He didn't do anything for yeah. two years on the Honda. So you know, we can talk a lot about the riding style for Bautista, this, that, and the other. He had the same riding style on the Honda. Couldn't make it work. He's on a bike now that he can make it work, and it's a massive difference maker between him and the other Ducati riders. And also, not meaning to pick on Rinaldi, because I said this about him earlier on when I was comparing him to Petrucci, but Bautista is a better rider than Rinaldi because he spent his whole career racing at a higher level, having to win a world championship in 125s. He was a great 250 rider. He had podiums in MotoGP. He has achieved a lot in the Grand Prix paddock. He's a better rider than Rinaldi. And now you're able to see the full extent of that again. Well, I think the other thing to remember is that Alvaro learned a lot at Honda. He learned a lot about mentality, being at the, you know, it's made him, it, I think he found his two years there pretty hard, obviously, he wasn't getting the results that he was hoping to get, the bike was tricky, um, and I think he's a, you know, he's a lot stronger because of what he's learned at Honda. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, he thought that might be the magic bullet, okay, Honda, HRC are coming with a new bike and I'll be able to mould that to myself, or well, the bike doesn't seem to be as good as the Ducati was, certainly for him, Um there's a good bike, that Honda, but it's still on its way. They made a lot of changes in the winter. That could end up being, I think it's got the same engine performance, potentially, as the Ducati, but at the minute, it's not the same package. It is moving forward, um, but so far, they got an inherited podium, and they've got two rookie riders. Again, I think we'll only see the real value of the Honda with a new tech on it at the end of this year. Maybe sooner. Maybe those surprises. That's going in a good direction, but as you touched on, Charlie, I think there isn't anything anybody's going to be able to do this year unless something goes wrong at Ducati. You know, Batista should now win the World Championship because Johnny and Top Rack, to some degree, have only got a certain amount of tools to play with. And the magic button is on the Ducati, which is, if he gets a straight long enough, he can just sit behind anybody. And the bike's, relatively speaking, behaving itself. You know, Ducati's not, it doesn't look like a handful for Batista. He, he can ride it enough in the corners to, to make this the, the, the magic button happen on the straight. And I remember he's a great Steve he's a great rider and that's a good bike and they've obviously got it. It's a better bike than they left in nineteen. So they're already operating at a higher level than they were in nineteen. All they need to do that is now do it every weekend. So if Alvaro's so I, I agree with you, we all know Alvaro's a really good rider, right? That's no doubt. But we have had two riders come in behind him and do a lot better on that bike. Now, that bike might have made a step over the winter. I, I get that. So let's let's give Alvaro the benefit of the doubt. But for me, the the exciting prospect is is that the one thing that Jonathan and Toprak know about Alvaro is that he can be fragile mentally. And actually, the racing is close enough. That's, for me, the, the most exciting prospect is that actually Jonathan and Toprak might 
not I'm not saying they're going to work together, but they might be able to disrupt Havro so much that it's going to put him off, and they're going to cause him a real problem. And he's going to, you know, he's, they're going to force an issue like they did in 2019 because no one saw that happening. He, look, he looked stronger this year, but he's now fighting two, not just Jonathan, two really good opponents. Um, but I think the trouble is when the bike's working well, he'll be able to beat both of them. You look at the way he has been. Uh, I mean, Jonathan intimidated them wonderfully in Estoril and obviously did that kind mm. of uh, bounce pass, block pass, clean, but very determined pass, and, and Alvaro let him go. Because I think Alvaro knows that, okay, well, I didn't win this one, I'll, I'll, I'll put that in my back pocket. What happened to Alvaro in 19 when he suddenly things started going wrong? And again, he's got one opinion of what happened and Ducati have got another. But when it started going wrong, he just couldn't accept getting. He was winning so much, overwinning, as he calls it. I was overwinning so much at the beginning of the season. As soon as he stopped doing that, he started panicking himself, even though he was the leader of the championship. And then it all got thrown away. So has he got fragility? Yeah, but has he learned from 19? The, all the signs so far is that I think he has. And he knows that Jonathan's going to, is within the rules, beat him up. And top rack can beat anybody up. All within the rules and all hard racing, and that's what we'll come to see. But I think he's now just going to know that there's enough days for him to say, okay, if a guy really is going to be that hard and I haven't been able to shake him free in this race, he might give up five points and four points here and there because he knows that he might leave another race with an easy 12 in his pocket, only 15 in his pocket, no matter what his other rivals do. No matter how good Dobrak and Jonathan are, if Alvaro gets the bike working the way it can do all the time, they're the, the, the Alvaro is going to be a little bit ahead of them more often than they're going to be ahead of, of Alvaro. Overwinning. Is that uh, something that you've ever experienced, Gordo or Charlie? Uh, mm. I, I've, I've, I've had it where it's been overly uh, difficult at different times, but never where I've been overly winning. No. Certainly not in recent Overs- history. <laughs> Oversle- oversleeping, I quite like, but I don't get a chance to do as much as I would like to. Over no overs not good no 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 overs not something I'm used to. Mate. Say what Char- <laughs> Charlie's not used to oversleeping after the run of GP races and superbikes and this that and the other, and uh, he's probably the only person that's as busy as Jensen Beeler, our editor for the pot for the Paddock Pass podcast, because he's having to churn out shows on such a regular basis. <laughs> I'm over queuing. That's pretty much it. <laughs> well, Charlie needs to have o- over batteries to keep his microphones going for as long as he does. That's what he needs to do. Keep an eye on the charging because he's he's a he's a machine. Yeah. Boy. Well, do you, know, do you know the one thing that, that about the over queuing Gordo? He should just fly private. He's working this hard. Surely that there's private jets that he can take from one round to the next, and then job's fine. I don't know why you complain about it, Charlie. Yes, Steve. I should make reference to my um, the fact that I'm looking at a camper van, not a not a private jet. There you go, and, there, and there's your clue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just love the driving, Charlie. That's all. But um, it's been uh, great to have you on the pod once again, and Gordo, as ever, great to have you on the pod. For anyone that wants to support the Paddock Pass podcast, you can check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. We've got a series of new offers out on that as well. So on our $10 tier, which is our Paddock Insiders tier, that's where you can get our Paddock Notes show, which is each day of a Grand Prix weekend. Dave, Neil and Adam get you up to speed on all the latest news and we also have it where for that tier you can get a coffee mug now with, uh, if you support us on that. We also have a different tier, the team members tier where you can have t-shirts, hoodies and uh, the coffee mug as well. So there's lots of new offers there on patreon.com forward slash podcast. 
I would just say, Steve, that Patreon thing is brilliant. And for someone like for someone like myself who flips between different championships, when you need to refer back and you know and get up to date information, um, it's it's just a fantastic source of info. But, you know, the the podcast in the evening from David and Neil are really good. They're little short fifty ones, but they can, for someone like me who needs to keep on top of the news. It's like a default place where you can go and get accurate information really quickly. So I'd highly recommend that. Yeah, really important to say as well, that's not sponsored content from Charlie Hescott. That's from our Patreon supporter, Charlie Hescott. So uh, that is not a paid for ad. No, uh, that's an opinion. Obviously enough, uh, big thanks to everyone that supports us on Patreon. It does make a massive difference. Big thanks to Fly Racing and also to Rental Street for supporting the podcast. And uh, Gordo, Charlie, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll have you back on around Donington in the middle of July. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Hey, Steve-O, can you edit that the top of that thing again? Yeah, just because that all that fucking camera van shit. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. I must have been on drugs or on drunk or something like that. <laughs> but anyway, do us, do us a favour. Get, get snipping, yeah? Yeah, no worries, Char. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. When we get to the end of this, we'll do a quick intro again and uh, cut out cool. all, all yeah, the camper yeah, cool. van. Cool. And, yeah, uh, I don't know what happened. Me saying I that I'll, I'll sell myself for passports. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I wanted to dive in there, boys, just to say, like, I'm not going to be the best man. Doesn't matter how much you ask me, I'm not doing it. <laughs> You're <laughs> a heartless man, Gordon Ritchie. You're a bridesmaid, and I'll tell you what, we're picking your dress. <laughs>